Good evening and welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces, your weekly news show where we focus on the discussions that are the topics that are dominating discussion in our city, our state, and our nation. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and each week my co-host, Let's Cats Marston, and I delve into the topics that are making the headlines. And we bring you the policymakers and the movers and shakers, the advocates and experts and authors. And then we open up the phone line so you can weigh in too. And we've got a great show for you today. But first, please join me in welcoming my luminous co-host, Celeste Katz Marston. Celeste, how are you today? I'm doing well, Jeff. Happy to be here with you as always. And for everybody who's observing, just want to say uh, Happy Lunar New Year, Gung Shi Fat Sai, and uh, wishing you uh, health, uh, wealth, and uh, longevity in this new year. We made it through the rain. Today is a much better day than it was yesterday, but there's a lot of news also going on. So even though I've been cooped up inside, I've been following a lot of what's gone on today. What has been on your mind? What have you been following today? What stories? Well, Jeff, you know, I was just reading about this uh, guilty verdict in the case going back to 2017 of this guy who drove a truck, a rental truck, onto the uh, bike path on the west side and killed uh, eight people, ran them over, uh, mostly tourists, but a few uh, Americans, uh, local people. And so now we're going to be moving on to the penalty phase of that trial, which is coming up on February 6th. But this was a jury trial, uh, finding this guy guilty. This is the first federal death penalty case heard under uh, the administration of President Joe Biden. And, you know, part of the discussion seems to hinge on uh, it doesn't seem to be so much about whether or not he did it, because from what I can see, even the uh, public defender, uh, federal public defender designed to him uh, uh, isn't denying that he did something horrible here. The question is whether he did it as uh, a mechanism for getting into ISIS. And so certainly a major concern there. But, you know, again, just what we should be focusing on is, of course, really tragic for the the families and the friends of these people who were just out enjoying themselves on a bike path when this happened, Jeff. Yeah, I've been following that and also the news that broke today. The five fired cops down in Memphis uh, now facing murder charges and Tyree Nichols' death. This is involving that uh, traffic stop that took place earlier this month. I mean, they were fired by the department after an internal investigation into his death. And now the indictments have come down on that. So we're going to be following that in the future, too. We'll bring you any updates if we uh, if anything also develops during the show today. But here at home. Lots of news today coming out of the mayor's state of the city, which took place in my borough of Queens at Queens Theater. This is an annual tradition of our mayors unveiling the priorities for the year ahead, but also, you know, patting themselves on the back, Celeste, for their accomplishments over the past uh, few years. But in this case, Eric Adams is uh, now in his second year in office. So he discussed uh, his accomplishments for the last year and also looked ahead and set his priorities. He called this speech or this agenda, the working people's agenda. And it focused on four pillars that he says uh, will meet the needs of working New Yorkers and represent his administration's focus in the coming days, jobs, housing, care, and safety. Now the mayor, you know, remember, he trumped uh, crime fighting, trumpeted crime fighting during his campaign when he ran for office. But he finished a year where there were some gains in lowering crime, but not across all categories. So in today's speech, he focused a good portion on what his administration is going to do to improve safety among New Yorkers. And remember, polls 
have shown that New Yorkers are very worried about the state of safety in our city, on the streets and in our mass transit. And so Mayor Adams, he vowed to crack down on, for instance, the most violent offenders, the, quote, extreme violent recidivists by increasing the uh, police department's crime prevention units and focusing on retail theft, expanding neighborhood safety teams that will combat gun violence, and increasing the number of police tow trucks to remove abandoned or illegally parked uh, vehicles. And, you know, an issue that, Celeste, you know I am obsessed about in my neighborhood. The, he'll, he also vowed to crack down on illegal placards and placard abuse. I mean, he did stress, though, that the administration wants to go after, by the way, this was a priority issue, violent recidivists. But he also touched on how one should be ja- not be jailed simply because they can't post bail, Celeste. Right, Jeff. And I certainly agree with you that uh, the state of the city and for that matter, the state of the state, the state of the union, typically these are moments where uh, politicians can focus on what they want to talk about and what they think have been highlights of their administration rather than uh, really getting into controversy or making any news. So speaking of the crime issue, as you were just a moment ago, we know one thing he really didn't talk about in this speech, Rikers Island. And that was the focus of a protest outside his state of the city today. Members of the campaign to close Rikers Coalition stood outside. They urged the mayor to honor his obligation to close Rikers Island. And that group includes people who were previously incarcerated, family members of people who died in city jails or who are now incarcerated there, and organizations that help people who were in the criminal justice pipeline. And what they wanted basically was for Mayor Adams to safely reduce the jail population and move forward with plans that were approved under his predecessor, Mayor Bill de Blasio, four years ago to close Rikers and replace the city's borough jails. Now, Mayor Adams has questioned those plans and talked about a plan B, and he has said he had asked the council to reassess that earlier plan, Jeff, regarding Rikers. Yeah, and that brings us to today's topics. Rikers Island, the notoriously dysfunctional correctional institution, shall we say, uh, it was expected to close in a matter of years in what, 2027. But as you just noted, there may be a plan B under consideration by the mayor. And in the last year, we have read a number of headlines about continuing problems that are plaguing this massive complex that is Rikers, the largest detention complex in the country. And as the pandemic continued, for instance, conditions got worse. For instance, in the summer of 2021, almost a third of New York City's jail officers stopped showing up for work. At the same time, violence at Rikers Island escalated. And last year, 2022, 19 people died in the city's jails or in hospitals shortly after they were injured or fell ill in jail. And just in the last few weeks, we've learned about how investigators who were rooting out sick time fraud and corruption at Rikers, now they're under investigation for abusing sick time. And this week, there was a hearing in which city council members pressed the city's jails chief about the poor treatment of persons of transgender experience who are incarcerated in the city's jails. This all seemed to be coming to a head last year when a federal monitor announced the steps that have to be taken immediately to address the conditions at Rikers in the wake of a series of deaths, excessive absenteeism of correction officers, and a rise in unrest and disorder. So uh, in November, one more development, a federal judge, important, rejected demands from advocates to transfer the Department of Correction from the city's control to a federal receiver, and the judge kicked that can down the road. This receivership argument is now expected to come up in court this April. 
So for this whole hour, we're going to be focusing on the systemic failures of Rikers Island. It's a problem that has plagued many mayors, not just the current one. And we're going to be joined by two longtime journalists whose new book, Rikers, an oral history, pulls back the curtain on the dysfunction through the voices of people from the inside. People who were incarcerated, who worked at Rikers, or who lost family members who were being held there. Uh, these authors spent nearly three years interviewing well over a hundred people, with most of these conversations taking place over the phone or in person. They also made a number of trips to Rikers Island. Then we're going to open up the phones in our second half hour so you can ask them your questions about what they found out during their investigations and share your thoughts about what you think should happen with Rikers Island. And we're also going to make making copies of their book available to listeners who support WBAI. So stay with us for more details about that. And with that, let us get to our guests. I'm going to introduce both of them. Graham Raymond covers criminal justice and policing for the New York Daily News. He previously worked at New York Newsday, uh, Newsday and the Village Voice. And throughout his 30-year career, he's won multiple awards for his coverage. He covered such high-profile cases as Abner Louima, Amadou Diallo, and Patrick Dorismond. And he was at ground zero on the day of nine, the 9-11 attacks and covered the aftermath for two years. He already had issued a book years ago called the NYB, NYPD Tapes, and his coverage received a number of nominations, including for a Pulitzer and other prizes. His esteemed co-author in this book is Ruvain Blau, who has been dubbed the Dean of Rikers Reporters. He is a top reporter at the online investigative news outlet, The City, and he previously covered criminal justice at the Daily News, New York Post, and The Chief Leader. And his ongoing reporting for The City has exposed quite a number of problems that continue to plague Rikers, the use of solitary confinement, escalating violence, lack of proper medical care, and so much more. So let us bring them on. Ravain and Graham, welcome to City Watch. Welcome to Driving Forces, excuse me. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. So uh, I'll start with you, Graham. We briefly talked about your coverage, but we want to find out more about why carving out these beats matter to you. Let's let's start with you, Graham. Why carving out these stories? These beats covering Rikers. Why why was Rikers such an important topic for you to cover over the years? Well, I... You know, I, I think that uh, all you know, every city has a police station, a fire station, uh, a city hall, and and a jail, and and how the jail runs, you know, reflects on how the city is run, and so it, it, in that respect, it's very important. And and I uh, I started with my my first long record story was about uh, the murder of a young man, but in two thousand and one, uh, and from there it it just interest uh, just continued as I went to the village voice. And what about you, Ravine? What was it about uh, Rikers Island that got you interested that made you want to uh, become an expert on the topic? Yeah, um, so I sort of fell into this um, almost kind of accidentally. Like I my I started, as you mentioned, uh, my career at the chief leader, and I covered the union, the correction officers, Benevolent Association Union. And at the time, they had um, their as part of their membership, they all had a subscription to the chief leader, and that was about half of our, our subscribers at the time. So there was a lot of pressure to, um, you know, report on on them on a weekly basis. And that, you know, as as any, I think as any reporter does, like over the t- over time, you know, I tried evolving and, uh, you know, covered it in different ways. Obviously, for the tabloids, where you know there's kind of a different concern about, you know, or interest in Rikers, um, and now for the city. And it's just a beat. Like, I know that like, over time, uh, you know, people have come in on the beat and, 
you know, felt like, well, you know, they want to do something bigger or, you know, kind of cover something a little more glamorous. But for me, like, I've always just felt that it's important to stay on it because the stories, you know, in order to get, like, kind of the impact or to kind of highlight the issues or the, the problems, like, you know, it takes time and it's not something you can just kind of do for a short period of time and, and you know, see any results or positive changes. And to me, it's just, it's just almost, it's become kind of like a real driving force in, in my career to, to kind of, um, you know, find new ways to kind of tell these stories. You know, it just feels like every day I see a new or I read about a new development at Rikers and Graham. We'll get to your story that you uh, posted on the Daily News website a short while ago uh, in a few moments. But, you know, with both of you, uh, Graham, when did you first, you know, talk about, hey, you know what? I think we have a book here. I think we should approach this as a book. Ruvain, when we overlapped at the Daily News, Ruvain and I talked about a conventional history, um, sort of, uh, you know, it, third-person history, um, but we, we ultimately decided and in consultation with Random House that that putting the voices of people who worked there, people who incarcerated there, people who had a personal connection uh, was, a, was a much more effective way to go. And this, in the book, it's, it's not just stories at random. It's the stories all, it, each of the stories, or most of them, illustrate themes that we that we have observed over the course of our careers uh, about how Rikers functions. And what are some of those themes? Well, um, there's it's a broad way. It's very broad. I mean, we, we covered a lot of subject matter. We covered the conditions. We covered violence. We covered um, escapes. You know, it's 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 a very, very broad you know, we just covered a lot of ground in the, in the book. And so, uh, as, oh, oh, go, go ahead. For it. So go ahead. Last, no, you, ladies oh. first. Oh, why, thank you. Uh, no, I just wanted to ask one question, just as a reporter, before we get into more of the material in the book, I always just have questions, and maybe, Ruvain, you can answer this. Um, you know, in terms of the craft, how did you get people to talk to you, and how did you decide which of those people to include in the book? Because I often find with these kinds of projects, not that I've done one, you know, uh, similar to this one, but in other kinds of projects, typically you either have tons of people who want to talk to you or very few people, and you have to really sort of fight with those people or convince them to to help you out and participate and tell their stories? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think um, initially we set out to you know, interview actually even more people um, and we started realizing that the people that we talked to had these amazing stories. Um, I, I think for us, it was because we had covered this for quite some time, there was sort of a group of people who we kind of had in our initial sort of, you know, Rolodex who, you know, we knew would kind of cover certain issues or certain time periods. Um, but as time went on, we really were, you know, kind of reaching out to different people. Like each time we, we all finished our interviews with the same question, which is, Hey, who else do you think we should talk to? And, um, there was a surprising number of new people that we had never kind of come across, including just sort of this incredible list of people who did time. And what I found was just absolutely amazing was how people were just so willing, especially the former uh, detainees were willing to kind of talk about their experience and how, a lot of the stuff has been bottled up and how they just really appreciated sort of getting the opportunity to be seen, you know, as people, as opposed to sort of, you know, for whatever the crime they committed. Um, so th that was a really, you know, kind of a great opportunity. And similarly for the correction officers or supervisors, like they, they shared stories, um, you know, and, and talked about like kind of their ongoing traumas that they've experienced as well. You know, Ravane, I'm going to stay with you for a moment because I always wonder when I read books like this, what voices 
you know, an author would have pursued saying, I need this for the book. You know, I need this as well, but they would never speak. Were there certain folks that you approached, high profile folks that you felt would have added more that just would not, you know, respond at all? I mean, we, we reached out to the mayors and I guess this speaks more to, you know, my kind of philosophy on journalism or kind of what I was taught, um, my kind of one of my mentors, uh, Richie Steyer, who was the former longtime editor in chief of the chief leader. And, uh, you know, he always taught me, like, I think when I was younger, I always thought, like, well, you know, I should interview the commissioners. It was actually one of the first stories I ever did was interviewing the commissioner of uh, the city department of design construction, uh, Kenneth Holden, who was in charge of the cleanup at Ground Zero at the time. But, you know, I think the best sources and the best stories sometimes don't come necessarily from the people on the top. Like, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's people who are, or really kind of, you know, in the, in the weeds and in the, in the, you know, kind of making the decisions dealing with people like on the ground. I mean, we did interview multiple former correction commissioners, including um, Jacqueline McMickens, uh, Michael Jacobson, and Marty Horn. And I mean, one of the incredible things on those interviews as well was it was just so telling and how little the mayors cared about Rikers Island. Like I shared the story last night on, on New York One, but, um, you know, Marty Horn talked about how he never heard from Bloomberg until um, there was actually a, uh, you know, they were trying to kill geese on Rikers Island. So, um, you know, that was that was a matter, like, that was just really kind of telling and how little they actually cared. And Marty Horn and Michael Jacobson have almost identical stories about how when they first became commissioner, they weren't even kind of told. They were just kind of told to show up to City Hall. There was a press conference, and then, you know, the mayor basically said, okay, you know, I'm making you a correction commissioner, and, you know, you better deal with this, and I don't really want to hear from you, you know, unless there's any type of emergency. You've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM New York, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Jeff Simmons, and we're talking with journalists Ravane Blau and Graham Raymond, authors of the new book, Rikers, an Oral History. And in about 15 minutes, my co-host Celeste Katz-Marston and I are going to open up the phone line so you can call in with your stories and your questions about Rikers. So, uh, Graham and Ravane, your publisher was wonderful in giving us some audio clips from the interviews that you had done. And Graham, I'd like to start with you because one of the sections in the book focuses, as you noted earlier, the conditions at Rikers. That's something you really expose. Uh, this is a segment I'd love for you to kind of set it up and then I'll ask Reggie to play that clip afterwards. But if you could just kind of talk a little about, uh, I believe it's John Boston and, and, you know, his role and also kind of a little about the light that he shed on the conditions at Rikers. Sure. Uh, John Boston was the head of the Prisoner's Rights Project for the Legal Aid Society for many years and he, he waged many uh, battles in the courts over conditions at Rikers. And, you know, and, and I interviewed him twice um, for several hours uh, each. And he, ta- he talks a lot about, uh, in just about every possible way, ventilation, heating, um, uh, the physical conditions, um, vermin in the, in the food, um, that over the years, the, it's, it's just always been a major problem. And in this story, he talks about the fire safety system and what happened when he and and other lawyers visited the jail to just check out and make sure the system was working. So, Reggie, our engineer, will you please play that clip of John Boston? Uh, Did I tell you about the tree and the fire escape in our previous conversation? I don't think so, no. No. Okay, well, this is along the lines of of, of neglect. Uh, This was back uh, in the mid-'90s when we were doing our inspections, our fire safety inspections. one of the things that we did when we were going around with a fire safety expert was, you know, you go to a housing area and you uh, 
uh, look around at the fire extinguishers and so forth. And then you go to the fire exit and you say, could you open this fire exit so we can go out of it? We've got to get the key. Okay, get the key. Can they get the key? Can they get the key today as opposed to next week? Uh, anyway, uh, so and we, you know, they would get the key and we would go out the fire escape. And one of them, the fire escape was so choked with rubble, apparently from some construction uh, thing that that it was uh, a safety hazard, you know, just to get down it without a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, them at, at AMKC, we got down the fire escape to the you know, an internal fire escape through the door to the outside. Then we step outside and we walk down a shorter set of stairs to the bottom of the fire escape. And there's a tree growing at the bottom of the fire escape. Right where if you, you you were running away from a fire, you would uh, the tree would be right there in your way. That's that's really just sort of shocking. But I think it's a really good example of the kinds of things you were able to expose in this book about just basic needs for safety and survival, just uh, apparently being completely disregarded at, at Rikers Island. So I, I'm glad that we got a chance to hear that. And Ruvain, we do have another audio clip, and this is going to be the voice of somebody named Michael Velez. Can you tell us first who he is and why uh, we're sharing? his story here for people to hear right now. Yeah, no, I appreciate this. And I'm just going to kick this one back to, to Graham because he actually uh, did that interview and he's a little more familiar okay. with Okay, sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> Michael Velez is the brother of Matthew Velez who, who was uh, beaten to death by gang members in RMDC, the Robert Ann Davern Center, which is a facility for the, for the youngest uh, detainees back in 2001. And, and uh, Michael in this clip talks about Twenty years later, how uh, what what's going on at Rikers shocks him in in, in the sort of the same stories over and over again. Um, okay, so let's hear that clip now of Michael Velez. I'm always astonished at the fact that there's still stories and, and and incidents that come out of Rikers Island involving you know inmates you know being assaulted by them you know. You know, within the houses, and still no type of correction from the city of New York, New York, on how to make it safer and, and better for someone to go in and do their time. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, 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 I'm intrigued by it. Uh-huh. You know, the fact that you know the city who's been held negligent on so many cases can't seem to get this together and put in some actual changes to their to that environment. You know, I mean, there's no other business where, you know, things like this could happen and the business doesn't make a change. And that was Michael Velez. You know, Ravane, I want to just bring you back on. I'm really curious, you know, what um, when you and and Graham heard stories from people or the relatives, people who are incarcerated, what did people tell you about the worst part of the incarceration experience at Rikers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, first I would also you know point out in, in the you know in this process is, you know, Graham and I have been doing this for you know over twenty years at this point, and you know we were we were honestly shocked by some of the stuff we were hearing. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was was this idea of bullpen therapy, which is the kind of the term that people use on the inside to describe going back and forth to court. And on average, in like in the nineties, and I think it's roughly the same right now, is which would take at least twelve court hearings for any felony case, and just how 
dehumanizing that entire process is. Um, you know, and it's simply largely because of the geography and also just kind of the bureaucracy. But basically, what happens is you're woken up at four in the morning, three in the morning. Um, you know, you're you're dragged to kind of different pens and then put ultimately on a bus uh, and then brought to court, held in another pen, um, and waiting and waiting and waiting. And you know, and these pens are just kind of really disgusting with kind of writing all over the walls and you know, kind of one bathroom, and you're trying to kind of avoid the people there because, you know, they're sometimes kind of wiring gangs in the same pen as you. And and then, you know, you're called to court, and frequently it's just, you know, kind of something technical or, you know, might not even be the right date or, you know, just something really minor ultimately. And you're brought back to back to the housing facility, and frequently that's just even after, you know, dinner is actually served. So it's just this entire day kind of soul-sucking event. And it happens over and over again. And, you know, you talk to people who have gone through this, and they say, literally, like, this is the worst part of the entire experience. And I, I was really surprised to hear that because I would think that it would be, you know, other things like violence or the food or just just something more kind of direct. But this is this is it. Like, you know, multiple people who've done kind of, you know, longer stints or, or multiple stints have, have said this is really the worst part of the entire experience. And I remember at one point someone calls it the seven chambers of hell. I seem to recall that was one of the things I wrote down because it was people were really open with you. Oh, thank you, Vane, for that. I want to uh, keep you guys on the line because we're nearing the halfway point of the show and we're going to um, we want you two to stay on the line. We're going to take a short break and let our listeners know now about the opportunity. Thanks to the two of you and your publisher um, where they can get your book, Rikers and Oral History. And then we're going to come back. In a few minutes after that, and the phone lines are going to be open. We, if you're listening, if you just tuned in to Driving Forces, we want you to call in in the second half hour to be able to talk with Ruvain and Graham about the book and about Rikers, your thoughts on Rikers. Uh, do you honestly think it's going to close down by, uh, what, 2027? So make sure you have the studio number. Do not call yet. Just wait a few minutes. We're going to play a musical interlude. When that music starts, that's when you can start calling in. And the number to call is 212 212- Two zero nine two eight seven seven. That number to call in then is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. So with that, I want to just let you know about this. Random House, Graham and Ruvain have given us here at WBAI, have given us five copies of Rikers and Oral History. It is available to you, our listeners, who want to dive into this groundbreaking oral history of the infamous jail complex. And this is a really troubling but really important portrait of Rikers Island. It takes a very unflinching view of injustice, resilience, and it's told by the people whose lives have been forever altered by their time associated with Rikers Island in one way or another. So if you support WBAI today in the name of this program, Driving Forces, you can receive a copy with your gift of $50 or more. And the first five people who call our donation line or go online to our website can get a copy. Now, we just want to take a moment here to remind you, why are we doing this? Why are we able to have these conversations? It's because of your support. WBAI is not corporate radio. We are not beholden to corporate America. This is non-commercial Non-commercial listener supported WBAI. You don't hear ads for big pharma or liquor companies or furniture companies. You hear public service announcements. You hear promotions for our programs, and that's it. This is free speech community radio. And topics just like this one about Rikers Island are something you don't hear uh, on many stations. Or if they talk about Rikers, it's maybe just a, a short news break, uh, maybe a very brief interview. But we go further. We want you to not only hear from our guests, but to engage directly with them. 
That's really important to us, and it's important to WBAI. So if you can take a moment today, call our donation line, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or you can go right online at WBAI.org and donate 50 more if you can and ask for a copy of this book. We have five copies ready for our listeners today. And again, we want to thank Graham Ruvain and their publisher, Random House. Remember, the book is called Rikers and Oral History, and it takes you on a trip into every corner of Rikers Island. It's sort of a, a failed society unto itself that shows us, uh, holds up a mirror to society's failings as a whole. You know, and so last, every time I read a book, I don't want to read the reviews beforehand if it's a book I'm interested in. So I waited till after I finished the book to read the reviews. They've been amazing. The New York Times calls this book impressive. And as Celeste and I both know, know well, calls the authors excellent interviewers who get people to say extraordinary things. Now, it can be a difficult read at times, but if you care about the criminal justice system, about mass incarceration, about racial and social justice, it is a book that you really have to pick up. So we're going to take a short break now, and then when we come back, our phone lines are open. So here is that number again that you're going to want to call, 212-209-2877. Graham and Ruvain are still with us. They're going to take your calls for now. We'll take about a two-minute break and leave you with some Johnny Cash. I hear the train coming. It's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in fools and and time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down the sand and tone When I was just a baby My mama told me, son Always be a good boy Don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno Just to watch him Welcome back to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York, also streaming live at WBAI.org. 
I'm Jeff Simmons, joined by my co-host, Les Katz-Marston, and we're talking of the authors of Rikers and Oral History, Graham Raymond and Ruvain Blau. The phone lines are now open. Here's that number to, again to call, 212-209-2877. Again, 212-209-2877. We're going to get to our first call. Let's bring that person on. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what is your uh, what's your topic today? What would you like to talk about? Good afternoon, y'all. Um, this is Michael Velez, um, brother of Matthew Velez, um, and I figured I would call in. Thank you for calling in. We we ran a short soundbite from you before you had done the interview with Graham, and he talked a little about uh, the conversation. Uh, you know, I, and I'd love for Graham and Ray, Graham uh, to be able to talk with you too. Just want to throw out one question to start. You know, because this is on my mind, which is as we, you know, think of that, there were 19 uh, deaths that took place in Rikers last year. And, you know, it just seems to continue every year. When you hear these stories, what goes through your mind? Well, first of all, thank you for uh, right, for, right, for allowing me to, 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 to take a question. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that there's still no accountability. You know, um, I think that over time, you know, and Matthew, you know, what happened to my brother happened in 2001. We're in 2023, and this is a continued issue. It's a crisis. You know, um, I work for a state agency um, in the state that I live in. If anything like that were to happen at least one time, there would be some regulations. There would be constant, you know, community involvement. There would be ways to enhance, you know, whatever it is that was causing this atrocity to to happen and i don't think that's the case you know i I think because it is rikers and because it is a prison system so folks who are not vested it's almost like well what do you expect but that's not the point of going to jail and serving your crime you know serving your time for whatever it is and it seems like folks just either turn a blind eye or you know don't have you know, are not invested in the actual, you know, folks that are serving their time to allow things like this to happen. And it's, it's just mind-boggling that I'm, you know, after all these years, I read stories and I hear of these incidents that continue to happen and there's just no no change. Um, so it's just, it's heartbreaking. And Michael, I'm so glad that you called in today and thank you for for giving us your time. And I think that one of the really great things of many great things about uh, this new book out from Graham and Ruvain is that it doesn't focus as much on the bureaucracy and it doesn't focus as much on uh, the sort of power players. It focuses on the voices of the people involved and the families of the people involved. And I just wanted to ask you if you want to take a moment right here on the radio to tell us something about your brother. What do you you want people to know about Matthew? Oh man, um, you know it's been it's been so many years. You know, um, you know the kid that I remembered was, you know, my younger brother. You know, we grew up together. We did everything together. Um, you know, he was a, a great kid. You know, and and you know things happen. You know, mistakes happen. People make mistakes, and it's just one of the constant things that I continue is, you know, to continue to think about is what would he have become of himself? You know, what would he have made his life out to be? And we would never know, you know, he was a great kid. He loved sports, you know, he loved collecting, you know, comic books and, you know, cards and, you know, he, 
you know, he and I played together basketball on the same team. And, you know, we grew up just doing everything together because we were only a few years apart. Um, and that's just, you know, that's something that I will forever, you know, hold dear to my heart that I was able to share, you know, 17 years with him. Um, and then that was just cut short. Graham, did you want to jump in here with your thoughts on the conversation that you had had with Michael? Um, sure. Yeah. The, the, uh, the chapter that we did that tells, um, Michael's story and we also interviewed, uh, the sister of Ronald Spear, who was killed in Rikers in, in 2012, you know, long after the media has moved on, you know, the investigations are over, the intention, you know, the memories of people who were lost to Rikers make remains very present to their, from their, to their families. And that, Michael, I wanted to ask you, you, you told me that you don't know that your, that your mom ever truly found peace after, after his, his loss. And it just, it just seems like, even though it's been 20 years, he just remains remains very present for you and for your family. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, I think the peace part comes in. You know, once you know, once the trials happen, the civil trial and the criminal trial, it feels like you know they took care of us in their own way, right? The way of thinking, and then that was it. No one followed up with my family. No one, you know you know, care to, to step out and say, hey, you know, what kind of counseling services, you know, could, could, could we help the family with? You know, it's very cut and dry, you know. It's like, you know, I felt like it took so long for them to admit guilt, you know, and um, there, was not, there was no follow-up, you know. I mean, if something like that occurs at any business, you know, the business itself puts in an effort to continue to have a relationship with the family that, you know, was hurt or, you know, in this case, lost someone. Um, And that never happened, you know. My mom, you know, struggled for years until she passed away of pancreatic cancer. And, you know, that was a big part of her life was losing my brother the the way he passed and not to feel like we were given any support or at least offered any support from the city of New York and Rikers Island to get us through some hard times. We were on our own. And I just, you know, he was in their care, and it's almost like we were just pushed aside. Um, And to this day, no one's ever reached out to me, you know. Um, I mean, with the exception of Graham, which I will always appreciate, but we've never gotten any closure, real closure, about what happened. And to think that it continues to happen it doesn't seem like the city is willing to give closure to families. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. Graham Raymond and Ruvain Blau taking your calls. And we're just hearing now from Michael Velez, who lost his brother, Matthew, at Rikers. And Michael, before we let you go, any other thoughts about how families who are affected by what has happened and what is happening at Rikers Island can sort of deal with it, uh, you know, emotionally, bureaucratically, legally, any, any thoughts on advice that you might have given yourself at the time, if, if you knew what then what you knew, know now? I think, I think grief counseling um, is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I did not have grief counseling um, as a 20 something year old, you know, my mom, you know, if she had any type of counseling was on her own. 
um, but it wasn't enough to help her get through it. I know my father did not, you know, attend any grief counseling. And I think, you know, when something like that happens, it's just so fresh, so new, the hurt is real. It's really hard for a family member to reflect on themselves to say, what is it that I need to help me get through this? And I think any family that has gone through what my family and I went through, you know, if you're not going to, if you're not offered assistance, get it yourself and go out there and get the grief counseling because grief counseling is very important to help you get past, you know, those events. You'll never forget. It'll always be a part of you. But I think grief counseling will help you as you proceed with the rest of your life as a family or individually. Michael, thank you so much for calling today. We really, really appreciate hearing from you on WBAI. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we're joined today by journalists and authors Graham Raymond and Ruvane Blau. We're talking about their new book just out, Rikers and Oral History. We're going to continue taking your calls. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. For our next call, WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello, my name is Sheldon, and I'm calling from Florida. What's on your mind, Sheldon? Um, I understand Rikers is, is a horrible place, horrible place. I have um, personal uh, connections with that. Um, what do we do as an alternative? We close, okay, we close Rikers down. Now, where do we place people? That's my question, Graham. Okay, Okay. thank you, Sheldon, very much. Really appreciate it. Um, Graham, Ravane, either of you want to take that one on and even what the city is thinking of doing? Yeah, I can grab that. Uh, So, you know, I mean, there's currently a a plan in place. Uh, The cost has gone up from about $8 billion to $10 billion right now called the borough-based jail plan to close Rikers by 2027. And there actually is city council has passed a law that says by 2027 there cannot be any jails on the island itself. And they're going to be replaced by jails you know, closer to the courthouses. And in Brooklyn and Queens um, and Manhattan, basically they're redoing or kind of knocking down the, the jails that currently exist in those locations, redoing them and kind of making them as, as described as kind of state-of-the-art facilities. And in the Bronx, uh, you know, building a new one there. Uh, and the only kind of borough excluded is Staten Island. So, I mean, that's definitely kind of in motion. You know, it's it, there's been some confusion about it. Um, Mayor Eric Adams has kind of been on the fence. He said, you know, he says kind of depending on who he talks to, but he said that he supports it. Um, you know, he's also recently done interviews where he says, hey, look, we need a plan B. Um, you know, the key part to the plan is that the population has to get to about uh, 3,300, and it's currently about 6,000. And last month, uh, his commissioner, uh, correction department commissioner, Louis Molina, testified that the city actually expects that the population to rise to 7,000. So they're saying, look, we can't, uh, you know, we can't do this until the population goes down. And they're indicating they're not talking at all about reducing the population. And it's actually really the first time in about 20 years that, that the mayor is saying we don't are not focusing in on reducing this population. I think one of the big one of the big issues is just on the broader conversation of like, how do you do this? What do you do? Um, there's clearly kind of a culture, you know, an issue of culture where, you know, the officers don't lack training for to handle, you know, or to deal with mentally ill. And the, the population there is at least, 50, uh, I think the last number listed in the mayor's management report was 50% of the population there is, is diagnosed with 
some type of mental uh, illness, and including 60% with a serious mental illness diagnosis, they're not trained to deal with it. Um, there's definitely kind of a lack of, of uh, you know, clinicians and medical care that, that is trained to deal with it. And, you know, the big question is, like, how did that kind of – what does that mean and how does that work in the, in the new jail plan? Those are definitely questions, and, and there's a lot of details that have to be worked out. But one of the things that, you know, people told us repeatedly in the book is – and highlighted is just the current situation is unfixable, right? You can't – the geography can't change, right? It takes hours to move people back and forth. It's totally it, – you know, it, it, it's devastating to kind of have to visit people there. It, it doesn't work as it's set up right now. Um, you know, what's been on my mind, too, is we started the top of the show and talking about the mayor's state of the city today. Rikers did not come up at all. Ravain, did this surprise you? Did you think, was it purposeful? Or do you think he just overlooked it? Or he just did not even want to go near it? Because remember, there were the protesters outside. Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is, I mean, this is par for the course, where the mayor typically doesn't, this is not usually something the mayor talks about or you know, it's not high on, the, on, on his list. And there's a great quote in the book from Marty Horn, who was the former commissioner during the Bloomberg administration, and he says, no mayor has ever gone on to national prominence based on how well they ran their prisons or their jails. And he says, and so I think it's unfair to expect that any mayor to pay real close attention to the details. Uh, you know, I think that's just, you know, it's, it's somewhat history repeating itself. I think it's, it's some level it is interesting because, um, you know, Mayor Eric Adams did actually appoint the correction commissioner early on, and that was really telling because it's really one of the first times I've ever seen this happen where there was focus on Rikers and there was sort of a lot of attention and, and anticipation of who that person was going to be. Um, but, you know, really, he's, it's not something that he's you know, been, been featuring since then. You know, and, and Graham, I know you were busy today because I saw that you I just had a story just a short while ago posted about a new development regarding a, a legal action concerning Rikers. I'd love for you to bring our listeners up to date on what you reported on today because it's another important development. Sure, there's a the in the Nunez class action case, Legal Aid Society filed a motion for contempt against the city for uh, not providing reliable data on on how long people are staying in intake, which is sort of the, the middle ground between when you come in after an arrest and when you go to a, your regular your regular bed in the jails. And these cells are squalid, they're fetid, they're incredibly, they're, they can be incredibly crowded, they can be violent, they can be violent. Um, and people have spent, there's a rule that says you can only spend up to 24 hours, you're supposed to only spend up to 24 hours in them, but people spend two days, three days. In in uh, September of 21, people were spending five, six days in in, uh, in intake, and, you know, it was a huge problem. So there, this motion is meant to bring, to try to get the city to, to come into uh, compliance with its tracking of data, because even the day, even the way the city was tracking how long people were staying in intake was, was coming into question. There were allegations that that the, the amount of time was being manipulated by DOC. And uh, DOC, uh, or rather the city law department, issued a statement saying when the, you know, when the opportunity comes in their response to this motion, they'll, they'll show that, in fact, they are, they are in compliance with, with intake. But, you know, as we've seen throughout the reporting of our, uh, you know, throughout the, the putting this book together, um, you know, the devil's off in, in details with, with, uh, how things function on Rikers. We're talking to Graham Raymond and Ravane Blau about their new book, 
just out called Rikers and Oral History. We're going to go back to the phones. We have time for one more very brief call. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? I'm calling from Brooklyn. My name is Denise. Um, I'm glad to hear that the phones are being opened. That's a very important thing. We've already received uh, two to three suggestions uh, to address some of the challenges that these two gentlemen are writing about. I do intend to get that premium, your premium, uh, gentlemen, uh, but I'm hoping that that book also provides from the uh, the uh, um, prison population uh, some suggestions. I know that whenever you're experiencing something, the person that's involved or in the thick of it usually has solutions. You know, uh, we have a tendency to focus on the problem. So I'm hoping that, that that is part of your book. And if it's not, if you write another, that you'll, you'll um, include that. Uh, this person said about grief counseling, following up when someone is murdered or severely injured. These are like fundamental things, and they could be um, they could be supplied by the families. Many times people in families need to speak with each other. We should be able to have some kind of a stipend to provide that kind of service. It would be much more cost-effective than having people have so many mental uh, challenges and problems walking these streets. All right, thank you. I'm just going to get off. Thank you. I'll, I'll wait for your answer. Thank you, Denise. Really appreciate your call. And uh, gentlemen, I know this is obviously a problem that's been going on for a very long time, one that is not going to be solved in a couple of minutes on a radio show. But uh, any parting thoughts here about uh, any sort of glimmer of hope for changing things at Rikers uh, based on everything that you've seen and continue to see in your reporting? Sure. I, I would I would just say that when I first started covering Rikers back in the late 90s, uh, it really didn't get very much attention, what was happening. It was sort of out of sight, out of mind. And one thing that we've seen in the last six or seven years is that it's very much at the forefront of a lot of discussions. That are, There are a lot of people very interested in it. You know, if you talk to the a lot of New Yorkers, a surprising number of New Yorkers have had some personal connection to Rikers. Either they know someone who, is, who worked there or they know someone who was incarcerated there. Uh, and, and, you know, so... So it's 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 good to see that kind of attention, that kind of scrutiny being brought on the system. Great. And Graham, if people want to find out more about you and your reporting on this and on other topics, where can we send them? Well, my Twitter handle is uh, Graham underscore Raymond. And um, that's probably the best way to reach out and, and certainly respond to any messages that I get. Okay, and Ravine, same question. Where can people look for you and find out more about your work? Uh, I, just the city, the city.nyc is uh, you know the site where I work at, and uh, and I've got some also some really wonderful colleagues there who do a lot of coverage on other city government issues. Great. Well, Graham Raymond and Ravine Blau, authors of Rikers and Oral History, thank you so much for taking the time today to come to talk to us and to talk to our listeners here on Driving Forces. We genuinely appreciate it, and congratulations on your new book. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for having us. Great conversation, Celeste, and I agree with uh, Denise. I'm glad we're able to spend more time taking listener calls and have our guests take listener calls. It's something that a listener asked about a few weeks ago. We're going to make more of a commitment to doing this uh, as we book our guests. We're hitting a good stride now, so that's just wonderful. If you want to read their book, before you head to a bookstore or go online to order, why not do some good and support WBAI and get a copy? Because Graham and Ruvain and their publisher, Random House, gave us five copies of Rikers and Oral history 
which you can get as a WBAI listener if you just donate only $50. So call us. Call the number 212-209-2950. Again, the number to call to be able to get this book by donating to BAI for only $50 is 212-209-2950. You can also go to the WBAI website where there's details on there on how to be able to, as one of our uh, dedicated listeners new to call it a premium. You can get that premium. You can get this book. Go online to WBAI.org. And as Celeste brought up earlier in the show, the reason we're doing this is because we want to have these conversations that we know our listeners care about. Because remember, we are commercial-free, non-corporate, free speech radio. And it's important for us, and hopefully it's important to our dedicated listeners, that we stay on the air. So right now, why not call our donation line at 212-209-2950, or again, go online to WBAI.org to be able to get a copy of Rikers and Oral History. Remember, we got five copies, thanks to Graham, Ravain, and Random House. And this book is just, it is, Celeste, it's just very troubling at points. As you read this, you're very concerned when you hear the voices, the unbelievably candid accounts. I want to also just bring up, we didn't really talk about it, but as the New York Times pointed out in their review, the final chapters of this book are intensely moving. I mean, that they point out that Rikers changes you. It leaves you worse off than you were before you arrived. So it's a difficult but important read. Absolutely. Remember, 212-209-2950 is the number to call to make your pledge to WBAI and receive as our thanks a copy of Rikers, an oral history brand new out for Random House by Graham Raymond and Ruvane Blau. Uh, Definitely worth checking out. Please just give us a call or go to WBAI.org to make your pledge in the name of Driving Forces and receive this book. We are coming up against the clock, so we do want to thank Graham Raymond and Ruvane Blau for spending so much time with us and taking your calls. We want to thank our callers and listeners, and we want to thank our engineer, Reggie Johnson, for keeping the show moving along today. We'll be back next week with special guest Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and New York State Assembly member Amy Pollan, who is the head of the Assembly's Health Commission. We'll be talking about two topics that we think you will find interesting. One is single-payer healthcare, and the other one is, yeah, human composting, which just became legal in New York State. Jeff, what do you have coming up on City Watch? I'll be back here on WBII Sunday morning on City Watch at 8 a.m. Yes, a new earlier time, so get your coffee ready. The topic, given legalization of marijuana for recreational purposes in the state, there's been a lot of concern about the impact on youth. Since legalization, we're seeing higher rates of substance use among our teens. You will be hearing from Michael Elson Rooney, a reporter at Chalkbeat New York, and then Devon Russell, who heads the organization WEDCO and has been advocating for stronger preventative measures. Again, the show starts at 8 o'clock this Sunday morning, City Watch at a new earlier time. So Celeste and I want to thank you so much for tuning in today to Driving Forces. We will see you next week with these amazing guests that Celeste just told you about. And again, we will open up the phone lines in the final portion of that show. And as Celeste said, although I won't do it as eloquently, for those who celebrate, we would love to wish you a happy Lunar New Year. Have a great evening.